are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is the chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, Michelle Jewell Shaw. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is October 1st, 2023, and this is episode 245 of Lighthearted. In a minute, we'll listen to a conversation about the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in Maryland. First, is there anything interesting about today's date, Michelle? There is, Jeremy. October 1st is the birthday of the American novelist Tom Clancy, author of many books that usually involve the military and espionage. He once said, quote, life is about learning. When you stop learning, you die. And yeah. I really uh, like that quote. I do too. I would definitely agree with that. Yes, I, absolutely. I that, yeah. Even at my advanced age, I feel like I learn something every day. And through this podcast, I, I learn yeah, things all absolutely. the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know being a teacher, you would appreciate that. Yep. And also, is there anything about lighthouses related to today's date? Yes, there is. The present lighthouse tower at Body Island in North Carolina was first lighted on October 1st, 1872. Its 150th anniversary was celebrated last year. It's actually the third lighthouse tower in the location. The first was built in 1847 and later abandoned due to a poor foundation. The second was destroyed in 1861 by retreating Confederate troops. At 167 feet, Body Island is one of the tallest brick lighthouse towers in the country. By the way, I'm finally making my first trip to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in just a few days uh, with my wife, Charlotte, uh, including Body Island Lighthouse. I am really looking forward to it. I've always wanted to go to the Outer Banks. One of these days, I'll get down there for all of the lighthouses. Yeah, I'm sure you will. You know, uh, <clears throat> people find it hard to believe when I've told them I haven't been there because it's one of the, the meccas for lighthouses right. in this country. But I'm, uh, so I'm really happy. Finally, I'm, I'm going to get I'm excited there. for you. Thank you. Uh, so, Michelle, please help me introduce today's interview. Sure, Jeremy. The Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in St. Michael's, Maryland, explores and preserves the history, environment, and culture of the entire Chesapeake Bay region and makes this resource accessible to all. The museum's collections include historic watercraft dating back to the 1860s, maritime paintings and prints, ship models, a Chesapeake region folklife collection, and a dozen historic vessels still afloat on the Chesapeake Bay. The museum's offerings also include an Apprentice for a Day shipyard program, which includes workshops and demonstrations with master craftsmen. The museum's Maritime Model Guild offers classes for building models from scratch and hosts an annual Maritime Model Expo. A speaker series presents a variety of lectures on Chesapeake Bay-related topics, and there's also a library and research center. Visitors can explore St. Michael's Harbor and the waterfront aboard the cruises on the museum's historic vessels. The museum is also home to Hooper Strait Lighthouse. Let me correct myself, Hooper Strait. I found from my uh, from my guest today that it's actually pronounced Hooper down there. Oh. I always said Hooper, but the uh, Hooper Strait Lighthouse. Constructed in 1879, it was one of the uh, Bay's famed screw pile lighthouses. After its automation in the 1960s, the Coast Guard considered destroying the structure. With support from the Historical Society of Talbot County, the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum stepped in to save the lighthouse. It was moved to shore and arrived at its final home on November 9, 1966, and it opened to the public the following year. 
Pete Lesher is the chief historian and ambassador at large for the museum. I had a very enjoyable discussion with him recently. Let's listen to that now. I am speaking with Pete Lesher, who is the chief historian and ambassador at large for the Chesapeake Maritime Museum. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pete. I appreciate it. Delighted. Thank you for the opportunity. I, uh, of course, was Googling you as, uh, you know, I hope you don't mind that I was Googling you a little bit, uh, uh, preparing for the interview. I see that you've been with the museum there for almost 32 years. That's pretty impressive. And I I was looking at your past credits. You were the curator uh, for years. And your current title, again, is Chief Historian and Ambassador at Large. So I think I understand what historian means. But uh, can you fill me in a little bit on what it means to be the ambassador at large for the museum? Sure. Uh, it, 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 what it does mean is that I'm, I'm a little bit more of uh, in an outward facing role. Uh, the the, the, the cura- curator's job is necessarily behind the scenes uh, most of the time, building the collections, uh, planning, planning exhibitions. And, and there's an aspect of, of kind of the, the, the public presentations and, and such. And, and also really, in addition to that, I'm working with public relations, with, uh, with government relations for the museum. So, so a series of, of outward facing roles uh, on, on behalf of the museum. Yeah, well, thank you for for clarifying that. Uh, Ambassador at large seems like a really good good title <laughs> for what you do, in addition to addition to being the historian. So, I also saw you, you got a master's degree from Columbia University. Right. I'm wondering, did that kind of lead right into your uh, position with the museum? It is fair to say that uh, I think the week that I left Columbia and New York, uh, I arrived at, at Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. Now, I arrived here to to an internship with my predecessor, the previous curator. And I will say that in terms of the subject matter uh, that, that we do here, uh, you know, nothing I did in graduate school related to, uh, to American maritime history, that was all learned, uh, learned on the job. So what I learned at, at the master's degree level was, uh, rather than content, was uh, those critical reasoning skills, those writing skills, those research skills. Uh, that uh, that then I've applied to the subject matter that uh, that we cover here at, at Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. Well, it sounds like it's worked out pretty well for you to be there 32 years. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about making a career of it. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a plan. So let me ask you a, a really broad question here. Uh, I know the history of the Chesapeake Bay region, of course, is very rich and diverse. The history is tremendous. But for you, uh, I don't know if you can boil it down to one or two things, but what makes uh, for you the history of the bay so special? Well, Chesapeake Bay is a unique place in many respects. Just if you, if you look at the geography, uh, by any measure, uh, Chesapeake Bay is the largest estuary in the United States, the largest estuary in, in North America. That is a body of water where salt and fresh mix from full ocean salinities down at uh, the mouth of the bay uh, to fully fresh water at, at the head of the bay with such a long gradation from fully salt ocean saltiness uh, to uh, to fully fresh. There may be one other in northern Russia that's longer, not as wide. Uh, it's it's ex- just geographically it's extraordinary. And because of of that, you know the bay's also a relatively shallow body of water, uh, which means that, there's a lot of life in it. It's very biologically productive 
and and has been for a long time. And so this this productivity has has drawn people, uh, has drawn people who see it as a resource, who have sought to uh, uh, harvest its natural resources, who have sought to work on it, who have turned it into this this natural transportation network. And I think in the end, what really makes the the bay special is the way that living around it has shaped us, has shaped the cultures around us, has given us an identity. People identify as being from the Chesapeake Bay, as being from the Eastern shore of the Chesapeake, as being from this place that is identified by this, by this relationship between, between land and water, mm-hmm. which we have so much of. I mean, if you go, if you follow the very convoluted outline of the Chesapeake Bay, there's something like 8,000 miles of shoreline here. Wow. That's extraordinary. It is. And, it really and, and is. What, what that means is that there's all this opportunity to interact because mm-hmm. we are, after all, land creatures. We need, we need some contact with the land, and we have so much contact between land and water here, which has, which has shaped who we are. Beautifully stated. So let's talk about the museum. I mean, obviously, we could talk about the Bay for for a long time, uh, and we will some more. But I'm wondering if you could give me a little little brief history of when the museum started, uh, why and when it opened in the first place. Right. Well, Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum opened its doors in 1965, and it was it was certainly a time of of rapid change. Uh, the The last steamboats had been tied up permanently. Uh, the skipjacks harvesting oysters by dredge under sail uh, were still were still a thing. We're still going, but we're seen as we're we're recognized as an anachronism. That surely the days of 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 working sail were were going to be coming to a close. Uh, we'd seen the disappearance of of a number of historic boat types on the bay. There was a perception that, uh, well, seafood, some of the seafood industries were in decline, oystering in particular, which had historically been so important. Uh, with all this change, there's there's a community movement that said we need to we need to form a museum to uh, to to remember how special this was, how we got to where we are today, and. Um, it was a project, actually, of the County Historical Society of the uh, Historical Society of Talbot County in Easton, uh, that said, "We really, while this maritime story is part of our story, uh, it really deserves a museum of its of its own." And rather than create a Talbot County Maritime Museum or something to that effect, uh, they they chose to do a, a baywide scope part of our challenge is, is how do we make sure that this, this is not simply a St. Michael's Maritime Museum or a Talbot County Maritime Museum? How do we make sure that this truly is a museum that tells the stories of, of the whole Chesapeake Bay, of Eastern Shore, but also Western Shore, of Maryland, but also Virginia, of, of, the, um, of all the tidewater areas of this place? And it, it, it was a community effort. It, um, this was not, as some museums start, the vanity of one collector who had amassed this wonderful collection and needed to turn it into a museum. It was instead a, really a community outpouring. And the early years of history show just hundreds of artifacts a year pouring in uh, from, uh, from the community. Well, it's a really extensive place. Uh, it has an 18-acre campus, right, and uh, quite a few buildings, uh, also a floating fleet of historic vessels. Just a, a, a rough idea, and I know it depends on the on the person. Some people are really into the nitty gritty of uh, 
history and, and I'm sure reading everything other people uh, maybe not so much, but uh, could you uh, maybe go over what you think for any visitor? What are some of the kind of can't miss highlights of the place? We are a waterfront campus. And so so the museum itself is is just a wonderful park. You get a view from the museum grounds out onto the Miles River. The focal point of the campus is one of our early acquisitions. It's a, a cottage style screw pile lighthouse, the Hopper Strait Lighthouse. And that that has been drawing people to the museum since I think uh, year two or three, uh, acquired in 1966, opened uh, to the public in, in 1967. And, and so you can go up in the lighthouse, uh, you can, you can self-guide your way around, you can go all the way up to the lantern. Not that it's that high up because Chesapeake Bay lighthouses uh, are, tend not to be that tall, and we can talk about that more. Uh, but as you go around the, the museum, we've, we've got this, as you said, a fleet of historic vessels. Um, we maintain them in-house. We've built our own shipyard to be able to maintain them in front of the public. We do all kinds of programming around that because people love to get their hands on and interact with the craftsmen. And so we're, we're doing, we have the craftsmen here and they're doing real work. I mean, this is preserving these historic vessels is work that really needs to be done. We're just not, we're not just making it up for show. And, and we're passing that on to the next generation. We bring on apprentices to train uh, the next generation of wooden boat shipwrights. So there, there, there's a variety of opportunities. It's, it's a pretty family-friendly place. So I do want to talk about the Hooper Strait Lighthouse some more. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, just another lighthouse-related thing that's uh, on the, the grounds. I understand there's an 1888 fog bell tower from sure. uh, Point Lookout Lighthouse. Can you tell me about that? Right. Well, some some lighthouses, a, a point lookout among them, uh, were built um, not out in the middle of the water, as Hooper Strait was, but on the nearest point of land. Mm-hmm. Um, the point lookout marks the, uh, the, the entrance to the Potomac River on the Maryland side of the Potomac. Uh, it is one incredibly isolated spot. But because this is a land station, it, it curiously enough in a lot of these 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 light stations of course you need you need a light signal for night the structure of the lighthouse itself serves as a day mark you recognize aha that's i recognize that lighthouse we must be at this spot uh, or this is our bearing toward that lighthouse and we can just we can uniquely identify it at night uh, it it has its light and again we 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 get our spot but then fog rolls in and now we need, we can't see it. So we, day or night, we need a fog signal. And uh, among the first fog signals were used on the bay were large bells, um, 800,000 pound, even 1,100 pound bells, uh, which when struck have this great resonance, can be heard at a, a reasonable distance. On the Hopper Strait Lighthouse, they had to build it all into the same structure. The keeper's dwelling, the light, the fog signal, all in one structure. But on land, they didn't have to do that. And they built the tower for the fog bell, elevated above the land so that the sound would carry a little bit better. Again, not terribly high up, 30 feet up in the air or something like that. But it didn't have to be incorporated into the same structure. And frankly, that was a blessing for the light keeper if you weren't, if you could be just a few more feet distant from that that fog signal. It got worse when they installed air horns. Good grief. Just deafening. But uh, but they're, it, it, they just built a separate structure, and that's all it was. It was a tower for the fog bell, fog bell, and for the striking mechanism that 
you know, they wind it up and it goes for two hours or something like that. And guaranteed the lights, the, the keeper doesn't get any sleep in between, but uh, doesn't have to, you know, ring it by hand. And it's timed so that it's going to ring its precise characteristic, whatever it is, two strokes every 15 seconds or whatever it was set up to to ring. So I'm just curious how, uh, if you know how it ended up at the museum rather than staying at Point Lookout Lighthouse. Well, uh, Point Lookout was uh, later automated. And in fact, the, the light today is a steel tower that's not on land, that's right. out in the water, out closer to the channel. The lighthouse itself was, was uh, deactivated by the then Coast Guard. The property actually was turned over to the United States Navy. And in the 60s, the Navy... Uh, still had this as an observation communications post. And this was just a piece of property that they had to maintain, keep painted and so forth. And so as the, as Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum is forming up, we moved Hooper Strait Lighthouse from its original location to St. Michael's. And when this became available, we moved it to the Fog Bell Tower. Now today, it's a park. I don't, maybe someday it'll go back. But had it stayed there with the Navy, it probably wouldn't survive. Uh, right. So we, we did play, even in a new location, a role in its preservation. Well, I'm glad it was saved. So you've touched a, a couple of times on Hooper Strait Lighthouse and the fact that it was moved from the bay uh, to the grounds of the museum. Uh, could you uh, maybe just say a little bit more about where it once stood uh, for years as an aid to navigation and how it came to be moved to the museum? Sure. Now, if you go down the geography of the Eastern shore through Dorchester County and below Dorchester County, there's this whole string of islands, Bloodsworth Island, South Marsh Island, Smith Island, Tangier Island. And between the land, Bishop's Head and Dorchester County, and each of these islands, there's a, a channel through. Actually, some of them don't have a very good channel. There's no really good place to get through between uh, Smith and Tangier, for example. But nevertheless, uh, between Dorchester County mainland and Bloodsworth Island is Hooper Strait. And this leads between the connects the main trunk of the Chesapeake Bay to Tangier Sound. And on Tangier Sound is the uh, Wacomico River that goes up to Salisbury, the Nanticoke River that goes up to Seaford, Delaware, the seafood packing town of, of Crisfield, uh, the uh, big oyster harvesting village of Deal Island. There's, there's lots of stuff going on over there, particularly, uh, particularly in the days when, when there was a big oyster industry. So lots of commerce needed to go back and forth between Chesapeake Bay and, and Tangier Sound. If it was coming from Baltimore, you might go down through Hupper Strait to get either up to Salisbury or across to Crisfield. Mm -hmm. Important for schooners and other sailing vessels, important for steamboats. Uh, they, they all used this. And so they needed a light to market. There was a kind of a twisting channel to get through there. And so they, they placed the lighthouse not on the land because that wasn't the right spot, uh, but out in the water close to the channel so that you knew that when you approached the lighthouse, when it got to a certain bearing, you, you needed, to, you needed to, to change course to remain in the channel to get safely, safely over to or from Tangier Sound. Mm -hmm. um, so the lighthouse is built, you know, most of the Chesapeake Bay, it, it tends to be soft bottom, sand or clay or mud. So unlike a, a rocky shore that you would find in New England, uh, on Chesapeake Bay, they could just drive pilings down into the mud 
into the sand, yeah. into the into the clay. And that's how Hover Strait Lighthouse was built. Seven pilings, sort of six in a hexagon and one right in the center. And they attached screws, uh, uh, helix, helixes to the to the bottom of each so that uh, instead of just pounding the the uh, pilings into the into the bottom, they were they were turned in. Now that's labor intensive, but it has the advantage that in the winter when when ice forms around it, freezes to the piling, um, the rising tide frozen to it won't heave the piling up out. It's got that flange of the the thread of the screw, hence the name screw pile lighthouse. It's got a helical thread or screw at the bottom of of each piling. I have a question for you that just occurred to me as I was listening to you. You're kind of saying Hooper straight. I would say Hooper. I don't know if it's just a regional pronunciation or whether it's unique to the the straight and the lighthouse there or that that, uh, that is certainly a, a regional pr- pronunciation. Uh, I've I've long believed in uh, in following uh, local practice. And and that was that is not my natural pronunciation of it, but because that's the way it's pronounced in Dorchester County, uh, where this originally was located, uh, I've I've tried to uh, defer to to that uh, that local pronunciation. That's really interesting. I, I'll try to say Hooper straight from now on. Although some of the people I know up here, lighthouse buffs, might look at me a little strangely if I if I say it that way. But it's, it's really good to know. So uh, as you said, it's a it was built as a screw pile lighthouse, uh, but the lighthouse that's there today, that's now at the museum today. Uh, when it was uh, first erected in the bay, it was not the first lighthouse there. There was an earlier lighthouse that was built that's in 1867. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the strait was first marked actually by a light boat. Uh, you've heard of light ships. Well, if it was smaller, there was a light boat. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the light boat was, was first placed there in 1827. So that early, it wow. was recognized as an early, as an important place to, uh, to mark, uh, to light. So after the civil war, the, the lighthouse, lighthouse service is building more and more, uh, lighthouses uh, getting our inland waterways better marked, safer to navigate, and of course, light boats. Light boats were tough to maintain. Mm-hmm. You've got to take them into the shipyard every so often, uh, get them caulked and and uh, tightened up, uh, seaworthy uh, for the next season. If it got really icy because they were just there on an on an anchor, they had to be removed for a period of time. Uh, and then, of course, there would be some gap before they were put back on station. And so there were a lot of reasons why a lighthouse was a better solution than a, than a, a light boat. Uh, so in the years after the Civil War, they built uh, a lighthouse at this location, replaced light boats in other locations as well up and down the bay. And it was a smaller, somewhat simpler structure, a little square thing, five pilings, one in each corner, one in the center. And the hazard, the danger for these piling structures uh, was chiefly ice. I mean, there were other things that happened, but, uh, but ice was the, the, the biggest hazard. And, and what happens, of course, you get a cold snap and ice forms on the surface of the bay. And the tide is twice a day pulsing up the bay, down the bay, up the bay, down the bay. Well, that's fine when it's just liquid water, but when it's ice and the ice starts moving, well, usually what, what happens is the, the ice, because of the shores, if it freezes across, the ice stays put. But when the ice starts breaking up, 
uh, starts warming up and, and the ice, it doesn't just all melt evenly. It breaks up and then it goes up and down with the tide and it flows with the tide just fine until it hits something. If it hits a shoreline, you see it piling up on the shoreline. Well, if it hit a lighthouse, it started piling up against the pilings. And the force of the tide with the weight of all this ice piling up could actually shear the structure off, uh, could topple the lighthouse. And that is what happened in, that is what happened in 1877 is that the first Hopper Strait lighthouse got torn off uh, and the keeper and assistant ba barely escaped with their lives. They, they got into, uh, they had a boat hanging in davits off the side. They made their way across the ice flows. It took them 24 hours or something like that to get to shore. So think in those conditions, overnight, wind blowing, below freezing temperatures, uh, serious frostbite. And, and the assistant never came back. The keeper actually did. The keeper signed up when they built the new lighthouse, but the, uh, the assistant keeper had it. Uh, with from that experience, never again would he uh, work in a lighthouse. It was a brave keeper, that head keeper who came back. John, the new structure. John he was he was uh, he was a diehard. I guess so. As you've talked about, the lighthouse that is now at the museum is a really a, a great example of those cottage style screw pile lighthouses. I forget the exact number. There were how many of those were built on the Chesapeake Bay, but I'm thinking it was actually dozens. There were some it, off the North Carolina coast in the as well. Of 35, uh, mm -hmm. that's not an exact number, but it, it is in that neighborhood. And only one actually remains on the bay at this point, right? Right. Uh, Thomas Point is is the only one of those that remains in its original location. Yeah, which is actually cared for by the Chesapeake chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, I know they do a great job with it. But I don't know if you want to say anything more about uh, just the fact that there used to be so many of those screw pile lighthouses guiding traffic in the bay, their historic significance in general? You no. Know, well, if you if you think about how many of them there were on the bay, and that this was this was probably the this was the most common type of lighthouse, and and there were a few that were identical, like the Hopper Strait Lighthouse and the one at Jane's Island outside of Chrisfield were identical. But most of them had some little different characteristic about them. It might have been uh, Thomas Point had six dormers instead of just two, uh, or Matthias Point had all this lovely gingerbread around the, the porch overhanging the lower deck. And uh, some of them had vertical board and batten siding versus the horizontal house siding that you see on Hubbard Strait Lighthouse. There were all these different variations uh, that, that you see on these lighthouses, but so many of typical square or hexagonal white painted wooden screw pile uh, cottages uh, surmounted by the, the lantern room, by the, by the light itself. Um, it was such a common sight on the bay that, that I think today it, is, it has become uh, a symbol for the Chesapeake. Uh, that we we identify because this was such a common site that this is this is a site that we uh, say aha that looks like Chesapeake Bay. Now there were a bunch on North the sounds of North Carolina, uh, Mobile Bay had one. They, they did exist in other places, but if you will, the Chesapeake Bay was really the home to the screw pile lighthouse, the cottage style screw pile lighthouse. It's not that well known, but there was one in Boston Harbor years ago. Oh, that uh, right? Known as bug light, but it was officially the narrows light. But I think it was the fact that it stood on those sort of look like stilts or long legs that people called it bug light, but was accidentally burned down by the keeper in 1929. Uh, that, was another, that was another hazard. 
and, and and sometimes ice was a problem with that and that ice could if if it didn't topple the light it shook it so much that the stove got knocked over well a a, a hot coal stove turned on its side that was in a wooden in a wooden building in a yeah. wooden structure yeah they 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 went up like a tinderbox mm-hmm. so uh, maybe uh could touch a, a bit on the human history of uh hooper straight hooper sorry hooper straight <laughs> lighthouse uh there were many years of keepers living there clarify for me did families live with the keepers there um on these so-called water stations not connected to the land uh, families were not allowed to, to live there. They were allowed to visit in warm weather, uh, so maybe for a couple weeks in the summer. But generally speaking, these were lightkeepers who had family and a home in a nearby v- village. Uh, and when they were on leave, they went home and visited their family. Their family did come out and visit them in good weather uh, in mm-hmm. the summer, but the families did not live there. And if you think if you're raising kids and and so forth you know where are they going to go to school and and all the, all those all those complications and it was enough for the lighthouse service to think about provisioning just the keeper and his assistant in a lighthouse like this uh with limited space keeping a uh, a family uh clothed and fed uh probably was the logistics of that were pretty impractical there was uh typically a, a principal keeper and one assistant is that right most common. Some some lighthouses had a slightly larger staff, uh, but that was that was typical. Uh, and that way, if there was if you had both a keeper and an assistant assigned to a station, and there were gaps, you know, there were times when there's a vacancy in one of those positions, and uh, one or the other of those two is stuck at the light station until there's uh, relief provided. But their usual duties were 25 days on, five days off. So in a month, mm-hmm. you get five five days ashore. You know, you can think of of all the circumstances that would keep you from returning on schedule. Bad weather. There's ice. There's sickness at home. There's I got I got sick. That uh, that the five days could get extended, and and uh, it wasn't supposed to happen, of course. But practicalities dictated that uh, that sometimes a, a keeper or his assistant was left for a a longer period. On these water stations, it seems in Hooper Strait, they were all all men. There were some shore stations where women or appointed keepers, uh, often as successors to their to their husbands. But uh, Hooper Strait had uh, had men only through its history, as which is more typical for the water stations. Any particular personalities among the keepers that stand out or, or particular incidents that happened oh, over the years that stand out? I'm uh, sure there's a lot, actually. There, there's a lot. Uh, uh, keeper uh, William Simpkins, who was uh, there in the, the 20s and 30s, during his tenure, they, they uh, installed the air horn. The diaphragm horn and there were complaints that i mean it was deafening <laughs> that the keeper would not turn it on until you know the fog was really really rolling in thick that uh, that he was reluctant to turn it on uh there were complaints that he hadn't turned it on a passing steamer complained uh, you know had he heard the passing steamer signal and he sh- with the the air horn going i don't hear anything else and he showed in the log that he had in fact been operating the fog signal there was a, an, an earlier keeper by the name of, of George Hart, who was always, always writing in with complaints. He had, he had a sickly wife at home. He was, he was written up for poor housekeeping. Uh, he wrote a couple of different times that uh, he needed a new door for the stove, that his a farmer girl number something or other stove had, was, had lost its door and he needed a replacement. 
ultimately, uh, he, he was there for quite a while in the early 1900s till they, uh, till they found the, the replacement for him. There was one keeper who uh, was lost at the station, uh, had, had left home in, uh, this was in, in 1918, and um, his body was found by a, uh, by a schooner, by a passing schooner. Uh, and uh, like a lot of Chesapeake watermen, he didn't know how to swim. And it, we don't, we'll never know what happened to him. Uh, the speculation was that he'd been on the platform underneath the lighthouse, maybe splitting firewood or something like that. And uh, for some reason fell in and lost his life that way. That was uh, Calvin Bozeman, uh, who is the, the one who was, who was lost, lost overboard in, in 1918. The logs tend not to be very detailed. They tend to be, you know, here are the routine things that I am responsible for, that I'm going to be checked on. They're not diaries. They're not journals. They're uh, just the basic just the uh, facts, operational yeah. facts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've seen that. I I have seen an occasional older log where somebody will write in about, uh, you know, so and so, some woman who lived nearby was divorced, or you know, things really personal stuff, which is really surprising. But for the most part, through most of Lighthouse history, yeah, that was just it might say cloudy or rain or. Uh, you know how much uh, oil was delivered, or that type of thing. Uh, but right. usually, usually right. just a few words at the most. And now, also, I was just going to say about the the keeper who died there. Something I often say when I lecture about lighthouses is lighthouse keeping wasn't as romantic as you think. And if you research the history of almost any offshore lighthouse, water lighthouse, you're going to find at least one tragedy in there. Yeah. Um, so not right. not as uncommon as people might think. Very sad, but. Not not terribly uncommon. When you look at pictures of the lighthouse today on the grounds of the museum, there's a Fresnel lens in it, what appears to be a, a classical Fresnel lens. Right. Is that the same lens that was used in the lighthouse in its active days, or what's the story with that? Almost certainly no. And we, I don't think that we know the origin of that story, and I don't think that we know where the lens from Hooper Strait Light ended up. But Hooper Strait, I, I know that it can't be the same one because the the uh, the one from Hooper Strait was a fifth order lens, and the one that we have in there is actually a fourth order lens. It's, okay, yeah, it's too big. Um, we do have a fifth order lens. It's not quite complete. It's missing a few uh, lenses, uh, a few prisms, and we we have it exhibited in the the second story of the lighthouse. Uh, but the one uh, with sharp edges and so forth, we did not install it up in in the lantern. So uh, that one is is a good example of the type, but certainly not the original. Yeah, I, looking at pictures, it looked like a fourth order to me from the size. So it's nice well, that it has one. Good eye. <laughs> What's that? Good eye. Yeah. Well, I I, uh, I have a local uh, lighthouse I'm very involved with that has a fourth order, and fourth order were, were fourth and fifth order were the most common, right? Uh, except for the more important seacoast lights. Uh, so you mentioned before that the lighthouse is open to the public. Is it open all the time when the museum is open? Any time that the museum is open, uh, I, occasionally we have to close it down to do like uh, to repaint the steps or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if and we try to schedule that for <laughs> when when there are a few people around. But generally speaking, yes, uh, if the museum is open, the lighthouse is open. Mm-hmm. And I understand the museum offers some programs related to the lighthouse. Is that right? Got some great programs. Uh, yet we build it into a number of our tours, both both tours for adults and tours for uh, school students. 
it fits in with a number of the the thematic tours that we do but but probably the 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 uh chief attraction uh or the the headline program is uh is an overnight program which a lot of scout groups do particularly girl scout groups we we actually had a previous staffer who helped the girl scouts redesign a badge uh, around our lighthouse program so there's a particular incentive for the Girl Scout groups here. It is a structured program. They learn about uh, the duties of the lighthouse keeper. Uh, they keep a log. Uh, they do uh, some, uh, you know, routine housekeeping, uh, sweep the floors and this sort of thing. Uh, no, we don't have them clean the lens. Uh, but uh, to, to, to try to give, give a flavor for, uh, for the, the life of the keeper as, uh, as part of this overnight experience. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I have read about that overnight program. It's been going on, going on for quite a few years, I believe, right? It's been uh, certainly since the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know I have read about it for a long time. Yeah. So uh, education is obviously a big part of what the museum does. Maybe if you could say a little bit about other programs beside the programs that involve the Lighthouse, uh, what are some of the major yeah. pro programs? Well, we've Program for adults. Uh, we we do a lot of programming through our 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 shipyard. We 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 structure a lot of those around you know, the skills that you might want to learn related to boat building, and and we call those we class those as apprentice for a day. You can come in and apprentice yourself to one of our shipwrights. Uh, and it's not just wooden boat building. Uh, we do things like metal casting. That's always spectacular, uh, and a little bit of canvas work. Uh, you know, sail making and 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 this sort of thing. So uh, all those all those re related skills, we certainly do a speaker series. Uh, we uh, we uh, spring and fall, but then there's a bunch of of programs for for school students and for and and an after school program. We have this this rising tide uh, after school boat building program where local students will will come in and and we'll we'll give them a project and during the course of a semester or or longer they'll they'll work on a on a concentrated uh, project two days a week after school with staff guiding them and teaching them tool safety and tool skills and, and such. And uh, we actually try to, we start that off, I think in sixth grade and some of them keep on all the way through high school. And, and one of our earliest participants is now a, uh, is now a, a counselor during our, our summer camp. Uh, the after school program becomes a summer camp during uh times uh, after the school year ends. So yeah. we, we, we try to engage, we try to engage people at every level and different interests. Well, that stuff is great. Uh, it's uh, as important, if not more important, I think, than maintaining the museum's collection and vessels and lighthouse and everything else. You got to uh, involve the community and uh, keep uh, younger generations interested in all this stuff. So I just think that's, that's all great yeah. stuff. The museum also has boat tours, right? Uh, and yes. uh, so-called on-the-water programs. Our, our main vessel for, for doing that, the Winnie Estelle, a historic 1920 by-boat, is actually out of the water uh, temporarily for a backbone replacement, for a new keel. And so we've been taking people out on, on other vessels, on some of the historic vessels. Uh, these are uninspected vessels, uh, and so we can carry only six passengers at a time, but we'll, we're, we've operated multiple vessels and been taking people out to watch the log canoe races or for, for other programs. And actually, this this just in, the uh, there's been a tour boat operating alongside the museum, the uh, Patriot Cruises, and that has 
just last just last week, I think it was last Friday, just became part of Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. So there's another opportunity where that opportunity has been available, but now it's it's going to be, uh, I, I think, more fully integrated into the uh, the museum experience. Wow, that's great. Uh, you mentioned the speaker series a few minutes yeah. ago. Uh, I was looking at stuff about the the speaker series uh, on the website. There's uh, stuff on the website about how people can request a presentation by, which is a little different from the speaker series, yeah. I guess, but people in the community can request a Chesapeake Bay Maritime speaker, Maritime Museum speaker on the website. There's actually a photo of you representing the uh, that uh, that program. Yeah, that's because I tended to I tend to do most of those. But I had a I had I had a hunch about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we do a speaker series. That's where we bring people here. We bring in speakers. I'm actually in this fall's speaker series, but that's not always that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. uh, often outside speakers, and we we provide the venue. Uh, but we also do a, a, the speakers bureau where, where yes, we send me or, or somebody else out. Uh, and that, yeah, that's part of my uh, ambassador at large role, uh, mm -hmm. getting out, uh, out in the community, getting out, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes I go a little, a little bit farther afield. I'll be, I'll be talking at Washington college tomorrow. Yeah. Does the museum host any other uh, events or festivals or anything along those lines? We have uh, half a dozen or eight events during the year where we do uh, a festival on the museum grounds where there's something even more than all the exhibits and boat tours and demonstrations that go on on, on an everyday basis. Uh, a sea glass festival, actually we do that twice a year now. A um, antique and classic boat festival, always on Father's Day in June. A Waterman's Appreciation Day, which is always accompanied by a crab feast in August. We do a big band under the underneath the historic Talchester Beach bandstand for the 4th of July, which is mm -hmm. followed by the town's fireworks. Uh, an oyster fest at, uh, closes uh, uh, at the end of October. Again, bringing watermen in, oysters every week, they can be eaten. And uh, an oyster stew con uh, competition among some of the area restaurants. We do, uh, we let the public be the judge. And a, one of my favorites, the Small Craft Festival at the beginning of October, where where people come in and bring their small, often home-built vessels and mm -hmm. uh, demonstrate with them and play with them on on the uh, on St. Michael's Harbor and the nearby river. Uh, so lo lots of lots of these these sort of added on uh, opportunities during during the course of the year. Uh, we've talked a lot of, about a lot of the things the museum does, but. Is there any one thing, or it could be a couple of things, that we haven't touched on that you would like people to know about the the museum? Well, we talked about the uh, the fleet, and and uh, I, I think what what some people might not always appreciate is is how how rich the collections are here. We've got nearly ninety thousand items cataloged into the collection. Now that number gets inflated by the large number of historic photographs, but also ships plans and manuscripts and models and paintings and and just the accoutrements of of daily life on on the water we can't show them all at once and so we've been we've been trying to do more to you know we do have these collections so that we can do new exhibitions that we can plan new themes and build them around a new story uh, and populate them with with the real thing authenticity it's one of our, our core values for the museum but this is a place with a, a really a really rich collection that represents this area and we're always looking to be to genuinely represent the cultures that we interpret 
And that means not just collecting the stuff, but collecting the stories along with it. And so what's so important when we collect these objects is to collect the story that goes along with it and, and, and to use the object as a way of remembering the person and mm -hmm. their story and, and why this was so important. We have to be uh, pretty selective about what we collect. We, we, we can't be indiscriminate. And what really leads us to say, yes, that has to be preserved in the museum collection is that compelling story, is that mm -hmm. connection uh, to help people understand why is this place the way, how did this place come to be the way it is? Why are we who we are? And how can this, these stories help us understand how we got to where we are? I love that approach. I think that's appropriate. Uh, also with lighthouse preservation. I mean, yeah, of course we need to preserve the actual structures, but the human history, uh, without the human history, the structures are, you know, they're nice structures, but it's the people that brought the places to life. So right. I think it's the same thing with the, uh, the whole collection that you're talking about. So I have one final question for you for bonus points, okay? And that question is, what has been your favorite thing, or it could be multiple things, that you've uh, experienced during your 32 years uh, with the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum? Well, I want to understand the, the, the culture that I'm interpreting. And I've always loved sailing. And so the museum has given me an, an opportunity to get out on the water. When we collect a, a historic boat, we can, we can examine it. We can, we can look at how it was constructed. But you, you more fully understand it if you, if you replicate it, if you have to build it. Uh, and, and that's what our shipwrights do, right? They, they, they discover things about these boats by, by, by replicating them over time. And also, uh, and, and this gets called in the trade experimental archaeology, by using it, by going out and sailing it. How did this actually work? Uh, was this a good idea? <laughs> um, and, and so we, uh, we, sail, we sail a Chesapeake Bay sailing log canoe, and I've gotten to crew. And, and love that opportunity. Like one thing that I did not grow up doing uh, was hunting. That wasn't part of the something my family did. And uh, I decided because waterfowling culture is so important to this area that I needed to go take my hunter safety course and get myself a hunter license and, and, uh, and sit in the blind and, and, uh, and, and experience that as well. So I, I've, what I love about what I do is that I get, I get to live it. I get to experience it and and I I seek out those opportunities and there are still things that I would love to do that I haven't yet done. I have not yet traveled with a Chesapeake Bay pilot up or down the bay bringing a ship into Baltimore. <laughs> One for the bucket list. Yeah. Well, that that'd be an amazing experience and you'll I'm sure you'll get to do it. Well, Pete Lesher, this is such a pleasure. Uh, you are, uh, I think, the perfect ambassador for the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum. I can't imagine anybody exhibiting more uh, love and passion and knowledge uh, about Chesapeake Bay, and it comes through in everything you say. And for the stories of the bay, like you said, that's the most important thing, the human stories. So, Pete, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to talk to you again sometime, maybe see you down there on a visit sometime. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. To learn more about the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, visit them online at cbmm.org. 
you know, that's another place I need to visit. I'm hoping to fit in a trip there maybe next year, I hope. Thanks again to Pete Lesher for the great conversation. So, Michelle, we have a fun event coming up for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses in a few weeks. Yes, we do, Jeremy. We're having a special Halloween event at the Lions Club in Kittery, Maine on Friday evening, October 27th. There will be a presentation about New England's haunted lighthouses by you, Jeremy Dontremont, and Ron Kolick of the New England Ghost Project. Yes, there will be. <laughs> uh, there will also be a costume competition and a silent auction and refreshments will be served. Check out PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org for more information and tickets. Also, be sure to check out USLHS.org to learn more about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including preservation grants, tours, and much more. Memberships and donations help support this podcast. If you listen through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. And we encourage you to spread the word about this podcast. If you go to the U.S. Lighthouse Society Facebook page, facebook.com slash USLHS, you'll see that new episodes of the podcast are always posted on the page uh, every Sunday. If you can, please share the posts on your own Facebook page. To everyone out there who works to preserve history, thanks for all that you do. We're all on the same team. We will be back with a new episode next week. Until then, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks so much for listening and keep a good light.